Greetings, everyone. I'm Jeffrey K. Lyons. In today's program, we're beginning a new chapter with Narrative Wars. We're going to continue doing what we have been doing on Tuesdays with the programs that drop on Tuesdays, but we're adding a new program, which is going to drop on Thursdays. We're going to call that Thoughtful Thursdays. And in those Thursday programs, we're going to look at an introductory deep dive into one idea, theory, or concept which impacts our present-day society. And the goal of these episodes will be to cover a number of objectives to name or define the theory or worldview. Uh, secondly, to uh, give the background or context of the primary scholars that were involved in that theory. And finally, discuss the impacts and criticisms which that theory has had on our present-day society. So today we begin our first installment of Thoughtful Thursdays by focusing on the topic of postmodernism. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons. You don't want to miss this. We the people are sick and tired. Let's peel back the curtain of confusion to shed light upon the mainstream media madness. And now, Narrative Wars with your host, Jeffrey K. Lyons. Well, and a lot of people today are sick and tired of postmodernism. It's everywhere in terms of college campuses. It's everywhere in terms of education and textbooks uh, that are being used in the public schools. It's everywhere in terms of government policy and uh, policies that are throughout uh, the United States, both at the federal and at the state level. And yet, postmodernism remains kind of a squirrely topic. Uh, people aren't exactly sure it is, what it is, and they don't know exactly where it came from, how long it's been around, or who were the people that were pushing this idea. We're going to dig into all of those topics uh, today as we look at postmodernism. Well, let's talk a little bit about the background of postmodernism. Now, postmodernism is something that has permeated American society. It has affected the universities. It's everywhere in terms of your secular universities, your large state-run land-grant universities, 10, 20,000 people on those campuses. It's everywhere. Postmodernism can be found in textbooks everywhere across the United States. It's in the classrooms and it's in government, both at the state and also the federal level. Now, what was going on prior to postmodernism being released? Well, first, let's back up. Let's go back to the year 1979. There was a book that came out and it came out in France. And it was written by Jean-Francois Lyotard called The Postmodern Condition, A Report on Knowledge. So this is when the term postmodernism really hit the intellectual scene. And a number of others um, began to write uh, in this vein of thinking, mostly your French intellectuals. 
took a couple of years for that to be translated into English and come across to the United States. So we're talking late 70s, early 80s when it started to really take root. But what was going on in the United States in the 60s and in the 70s? Well, the culture of the United States was being uh, shaken and much of this had to do with the Vietnam War. Soldiers were coming back, all beat up. Uh, soldiers were not being respected because, well, people hated the war. And uh, this war was dragging on and on. It started in 1954. The French were in South Vietnam. And then the Americans went in there and it just drug on and on and on. Uh, ending in the 70s. So many people, all they knew was this war uh, for their entire life. That's all they knew. There was burnings of draft cards. There were riots. There were protests all over the United States to end the war. And if you see the movie Forrest Gump, you're going to see snippets of that uh, piece of time, that, that, that sort of a window into time uh, regarding the uh, Vietnam War. It's sort of a, in that movie, it's uh, kind of a comical uh, look at it, but there are many other movies uh, that, are, that take a very serious, um, more of a serious approach to the Vietnam War. Well, people reacted, uh, people burned their uh, draft cards. Um, there was a university professor, Timothy Leary, who got his PhD in psychology, UC Berkeley, and uh, his solution was take LSD or use LSD to treat people. So yeah, that was Timothy Leary. So the university campuses were certainly affected. Uh, UC Berkeley was a radical hotbed uh, during this period of time. Uh, the 60s in the United States, there was race riots. Uh, there was uh, tension um, between blacks and whites. And so this culminated in the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 67, which was supposed to quell that. Uh, if you remember backing up a few years prior to that, 1963, that was the assassination of President Kennedy. And many have said that Kennedy was going to pull the United States out of the Vietnam War. And uh, when he was assassinated, sort of the pedal went to the metal and uh, we ramped up our involvement in Vietnam. But that's a subject for another episode of Narrative Wars. The 1968 assassination of Reverend Martin Luther King and the 68 assassination of Robert Kennedy. Well, those also followed the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 67. So there was still a tremendous amount of racial tension in the 1960s, the late 1960s, and moving on into the 1970s. So again, these were tumultuous times in the 60s and the 70s, and intellectuals began to publish books that offered an alternative to trying to make sense out of the destruction and the confusion of war and uh, sort of this defeatist at atmosphere that Americans were enduring during this period of time. And so we're going to move forward to a book that predated postmodernism, but again, it kind of laid the groundwork for the reception of postmodernism uh, in the United States. Now, this was published in England, English 
And this was came out of the United States. Berger and Luckman uh, published a classic. Today, it's uh, cited as a classic. And that was The Social Construction of Reality. And uh, I highly recommend that you look that up, dive a little deeper, and look at a synopsis of that book. But this book postulated that objective reality is not constant, but rather a product of group construction, group identification. And so what they were saying is there aren't constants out there, but that uh, ideas are simply constructed in people's minds. In other words, there's no absolute truth. Uh, so that idea was floating out there. The authors created a term they called the sociology of knowledge. So uh, the uh, sociologists now took over history and historicity. And uh, so this was taking place. Uh, both creation and understanding of knowledge itself was now at question. Uh, quote from the book, uh, the social construction of reality, they stated, it is our contention that the sociology of knowledge must concern itself with whatever passes for knowledge in a society, regardless of the ultimate validity or invalidity by whatever criteria of such knowledge. In other words, we contend that the sociology of knowledge is concerned with the analysis of social construction of reality. Well, this was a very bold idea. Now, sociology uh, was invented by uh, someone named Herbert Spencer many years ago. He was a contemporary of Charles Darwin, and the idea of uh, sociology is to study groups, uh, groups of human beings, whereas psychology deals with the individual human being primarily. So the field that was now launched uh, just with this one book today is called Constructivism. Again, it's called Constructivism, and that's in the academic literature. And today there's hundreds of thousands of articles out there on this topic and thousands of books that deal with this topic. So this topic is out there, and it kind of laid the groundwork for this idea of postmodernism. So let's move on. What is the definition of postmodernism? Well, according to Francois Lyotard, who wrote this book in 1979, again, the book is The Postmodern Condition, A Report on Knowledge. And remember, this was a book that was written in French, and it had to be translated into English to come across to the United States and be available to the majority of the people because, of course, the majority of people in the United States, we can't read French. So according to Leotard, what is postmodernism? Well, first, primarily, it is a rejection of grand narratives. And it is even a rejection of truth itself. Well, what does that mean, grand narrative? Well, it's referred to as meta-narrative. The word meta means grand, and we understand the word narrative is a conversation, but it is also a story. Let's say a friend of yours, uh, even a family member, comes home at night. What's, what's the first thing we say? Well, we say, how was your day? 
and then they begin to recount some of the things that occurred during their day. That is a narrative. Now, narratives take place every single day. Millions and millions of people tell stories of their day. But what is a meta-narrative? A meta-narrative is a story of stories. For example, we just mentioned the Vietnam War, 1954 to 1973, ending with the Paris Peace Accords. Well, you can have many, many, many stories of soldiers, of officers, and behind the scenes government policy uh, regarding the Vietnam War. You can interview hundreds of thousands of people, potentially, perhaps millions of people, if anybody had the time. But the meta-narrative of the Vietnam War is the overarching story. What took place between 1954 and 1973? How do we understand this? How do we make sense of it? How did it affect society? How did society react to it? push back? What was society like prior to the Vietnam War? What was society like after the Vietnam War? What about those people that were children and grew up and they knew nothing else except the Vietnam War? Uh, so there are many grand narratives which discuss the Vietnam War. Another example is religion. Now, the Bible has 66 books written over thousands of years. And you've got many, many, many narratives, many stories in the Bible. Of course, you have the creation story in the book of Genesis. You have the Moses and the ark. You have stories of the Jews coming out of uh, Egypt, the Exodus, many, many stories. And then you move forward to what is called the New Testament, the story of Jesus' birth. We know a little bit about that with Christmas, uh, spoiler alert. Probably Jesus was not born on December the 25th. But that's a, that's a topic for a future episode of Narrative Wars. We're not going to deal with that one today. Just put that out there. Many, many stories. So if you just read the book of Genesis, you're only going to get one part of it. If you only read the book of Psalms, uh, and the, the poetry in the Psalms, you're only going to get part of it. If you only read the book of Job, uh, which talks about one particular family and uh, the head of the household and all the trials that Job went through, you're only going to get one part of the story. If you only read the Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you're only going to get one part of it. The grand narrative of the Bible can be summed up in one verse, John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so the grand narrative is that man has fallen, man needs a savior, God sent his son, Christ, and those that accept the message of Christ as God in the flesh and believe that he raised from the dead, well, they're going to have a relationship with God for all eternity. So that is the grand narrative. Of course, you can expand on that grand narrative, which people do, and they go to seminary and study for years and years and years. But in a nutshell, that's it. Now, postmodernism rejects all grand narratives. This is what you need to understand. 
It is atheism dressed up in fancy language, okay? It rejects Christianity. It rejects Buddhism. It rejects Hinduism. It rejects Islam and any other religion you can come up with. It rejects all of those grand narratives. Not only that, it rejects history itself. You can't talk about the Industrial Revolution. You can't talk about the period of time called the Italian Renaissance in the 15th century. Can't talk about the significance of the inventions of Leonardo da Vinci and how they're still impacting us today. You can't talk about the Enlightenment period, the 17th and 18th centuries. You can't talk about the great scientists. Uh, you can't talk about Isaac Newton. You can't talk about Maxwell. You can't talk about uh, scientists who discovered electricity. You can't talk about that. These are all grand narratives. I mean, look, if we didn't have electricity, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't even do this show. None of this equipment would work. We didn't have electricity. We wouldn't have, of course, lights in our homes. We wouldn't have our cars. Certainly wouldn't have electric vehicles, which we talked about last episode. How about the invention of wireless communication? radio, television. We wouldn't have our cell phones. But you can't talk about that. Those are all grand narratives. This is the insidious nature of postmodernism. There is no objective reality, according to Encyclopedia Britannica. Postmodern thinkers claim there's no objective reality. The sun seems to be there, but maybe it's really not there. The ground you walk on seems to be there, but maybe it's not really there. There's no scientific historical truth. The moon does not actually rotate around the sun. There aren't phases of the moon. There aren't tides that go up and down because of the phases of the moon, because of the close proximity of the moon and then the more distant proximity of the moon. No, there's no relationship to the moon and the earth and gravity impacting the ties. That doesn't exist. Science and technology, reason, logic, they're not vehicles of human progress, but they're suspect instruments of established power. Reason and logic are not universally valid. And this is we're going to talk more about the criticism of postmodernism, but here I just, I'm just going to throw out a teaser here. One of the first claims, or one of the early claims, is there's no scientific or historical truth. In fact, there's no truth itself. Well, if you claim there's no truth, then you've made a truth statement. Is there really no truth? Is that true? Well, yeah, it's true. There's no truth. Okay, well, then there's a truth. You just stated there's no truth. You see, there's a circular reasoning that is not only insidious, but it um, reduces people to intellectual morons. There's no such thing as human nature, uh, human behavior, psychology, socially determined or constructed. 
So no such thing as human nature. You know, let's just get rid of the psychology department on the other side of the campus. Take our classes. Language does not refer to reality outside of itself. There's no certain knowledge. No general theory of the natural or social world can be valid or true. All meta-narratives, well, they're false. Oh, okay, so let's just fire all the history professors on the university campuses because there's no such thing as history. There's no meta-narratives. Leotard suggested that history should be replaced by small daily narratives and observations. So <laughs> this is very Orwellian. History is wrong speak. You can't talk about, again, we mentioned the Italian Renaissance. You can't talk about the Industrial Revolution. No, that's wrong speech. Can't talk about that. No, not allowed. You can't talk about the Italian Renaissance. Wrong speak. Can't do it. If you don't know what I'm referring to, you're going to have to go read 1984 by George Orwell. Wrong speak. No, you can't do that. Can't teach history. Nope, sorry. We're going to have to fire. This is what the French intellectuals are saying. You're going to have to fire all the people on campus over there in the history department. Just fire all those people. No, no, no history needs to be talked about. All we can talk about is tiny little stories. What happened today when we went to work? That's it. That's all that will be allowed. That's right speak. That's speech that is allowed. The, you see the insidious nature of what postmodernism is? The most uncomfortable aspect of postmodernism is that it has embedded in the term the word modern. And so th th by saying postmodern, they're saying this occurs after modernism. That's what post is. It just means after. Well, that's very bothersome. Uh, they figured out the French intellectuals. It's, oh, no, modernism, we're saying it doesn't exist. But by creating a word called postmodernism, we're acknowledging that modernism does exist. Well, we don't want people to think about modernism. We don't want people to think about the Renaissance and Leonardo da Vinci, Galileo. We don't want people to think about Sir Isaac Newton, gravity. We don't want people to think about these great uh, discoveries, Maxwell. We don't want people to think about that. So, all right. They tweaked the terms a few years later, and they came up with another term. They came up with the term structuralism. So now we're going to call it post-structuralism. So that post-structuralism is a somewhat of a synonym, not exactly the same as postmodernism, but for many of these postmodern thinkers, they were uncomfortable with postmodernism because it was a tip of the hat. It was an acknowledgement that there was modernism and that there was scientific discovery. And so we don't want to talk about that. We don't, we don't want people peeking behind the curtain. Oh, what is modernism? We don't want them asking that question. So we're going to change the words. We're going to, we're going to do a grammatical dance here and call it structuralism. So in other words, there was a time when things were more structured, but now we don't want things to be structured. 
We're going to throw away meta-narratives, and so we're going to call it post-structuralism. Narrative Wars continues to expand its audience for both the United States and internationally. We want to give a shout out to listeners in Brunei, United Kingdom, Canada, and India this month. And for those of you who are listening to this program in the United States, we understand that you could choose to do other things with your time. We honor your commitment to free speech, American values that still make us all proud to be living in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Well, some of you have been wondering, why does this particular episode of Narrative Wars sound so different? The reason was explained recently, but in just case you missed last week's show, here's the explanation in a nutshell. Tuesday programs on Narrative Wars, they're going to remain the same with the same format. Multiple stories where we shed light on the mainstream media madness. But today is Thursday, September the 23rd, and this program format is something special that we're going to do on just Thursdays. On Thursdays, we'll dig deeper into one particular topic, theory, or worldview that's affecting our society. The Thursday programs are something new, and we welcome your feedback and input on future topics for Thursday programs. Don't worry, we're not going to change the format of our Tuesday programs that you've become used to. We've crossed the 3,000 download mark, and we want to expand our content. So we're sort of experimenting and trying something new on Thursdays. Thank you for your support. Finally, we want to give a big shout out to those listeners who are now following us on Getter. That's G-E-T-T-R. I do enjoy receiving your feedback and reading some of them on the air. And again, you can follow us on Getter. Just go to at Jeffrey K. Lyons. And that's Lyons with a Y. And for more information, visit our website at narrativewars.org. That's narrativewars.org. Also, when you listen to us on your favorite podcasting app, please five-star rate, follow, and send our podcast link to two to three like-minded friends. And that's how we continue to expand the Narrative Wars posse. We truly appreciate your support. You're the reason why we do this program. And now, let's continue. So let's move on to some of the contributing scholars who uh, thought deep French thoughts. Uh, Jacques Derrida, 1930 to 2004, was when he lived. He was a French philosopher, as we mentioned. He came up with the term deconstruction. Now, he floated this term out there in 67, which was a number of years prior to the postmodern condition reported knowledge uh, published by Jean-Francois Lyotard. And so this book sort of laid the groundwork for the reception of postmodern condition. Uh, the publication of three texts came out 
by Jacques Derrida uh, of grammatology, writing and difference, and speech and phenomena. It made him an instant rock star uh, among the French intellectuals, and uh, the so-called publication blitz immediately established Derrida. He became a major figure in a new movement in philosophy called deconstruction vocabulary. Now, moving forward, Michel Foucault, he was another French philosopher, uh, historian. Uh, He was openly gay. Foucault's critique of modernity and humanism, along with his proclamation of the death of man, which is kind of a continuation of the thinking that Nietzsche had put forth prior. Uh, Remember, Nietzsche was the one that proclaimed that God is dead. So it kind of makes sense. Uh, Here's Foucault talking about the death of man, kind of pivoting on Nietzsche, uh, rejecting the idea of metaphysical truth or religions, uh, that there are no grand narratives. Uh, He developed new perspectives on society and knowledge. He talked a lot about discourse, conversations, narratives between human beings, and he talked about power and how power has made him uh, and, and, and these ideas made him a major source of postmodern thought. Foucault uh, was focused on language, the creation of power between groups and people. Well, today we talk a lot about culture wars, uh, power between this group and that group. Uh, we talk about marginalized groups in society and the lack of power and the need to redistribute power uh, to different groups. All of this is Foucault, Michael Foucault. And later on, this uh, went over into other theories. You see it in gender studies. You see it in another theory called queer theory, which came along a number of years uh, later. Uh, We'll dive into that in future episodes. But again, Foucault is contributing to the postmodern literature here. Foucault wrote in 1970 in a book called The Order of Things uh, that it is comforting and a source of profound relief to think that man is only a recent invention, a figure not yet two centuries old. I don't know how he got this, that man is two centuries old. I mean, we've got the Bible, which has got texts in there thousands of years old. So, you know, I... I don't know. I guess he just assumes that people that are reading his works are intellectual morons. But I continue. Uh, He says there's a new wrinkle in our knowledge and that man will disappear again as soon as that knowledge has discovered a new form. Michel Foucault's 1970 work, uh, The History of Sexuality, posited that identity is not innate and that sexuality is a social construct. Now, many of these things, they sort of clash with each other. Of course, Foucault, on one sense, uh, he's considered to be a contributor to postmodernism. We've already said that postmodernism rejects meta-narratives. History is a great example of a meta-narrative. And yet, in 76, the same year that the book Postmodern Condition, A Report on Knowledge, uh, was published, Foucault uh, publishes a book called The History of Sexuality. Well, history is something that is rejected by postmoderns. So, you know, these people don't always 
completely agree with each other. Uh, their terminology overlaps, but there is a meta narrative about postmodernism that it believes certain things, that there are certain tenets, uh, the rejection of meta narratives being right at the top. But they sort of embrace Foucault into the group, even though he wrote this book called The History of Sexuality. So try to make sense out of that. Look, if you can make sense out of that, then you understand uh, French intellectualism. They don't always agree. But what they do agree is that, hey, we all have important ideas. People need to buy our books. People need to listen to our lectures. And people need to take our classes. All right, let's look at criticism of postmodernism. Jürgen Habermas, he was one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century, born back in 1929. Uh, he experienced uh, Germany and the Nazi uh, takeover of Germany. Uh, he actually was a Hitler youth when he was uh, a young man, a preteen. So anyway, he had uh, quite a fascinating life, a number of things uh, that uh, happened. We don't have time to dig into the entire background of Jürgen Habermas, but he criticized postmodernism. And one of these things that he pointed out is that postmodernism contradicts itself through self-reference. It notes that postmodernists presuppose concepts that they otherwise seek to undermine. Freedom, subjectivity, creativity. So we said that embedded in the term postmodernism is the word modern. So they presuppose that modern exists when they say, no, we're going to be postmodernists and meta narratives don't exist. So it's a type of circular reasoning. They have to admit certain things exist in order to shoot them out of the sky. And Jürgen Habermas is putting a flag on the field and saying, no, this sort of circular reason, reasoning doesn't make sense. And it's self-referencing. And uh, so it needs to be rejected. Now, the linguist Noam Chomsky, uh, who is uh, quite uh, well known around the world, he criticized postmodernism sort of from a different angle. Chomsky notes criticism of the French intellectual movement uh, in general. He labels postmodernism as coming primarily from French scholars of French intellectuals, they sort of operate in an intellectual bubble which out, without having a lot of input from the outside. Uh, Chomsky even notes that some of these texts which criticize uh, the natural sciences, he says they're rather embarrassing. So you can dig into that. His, Chomsky, there's a number of interviews out there and you can find them with Chomsky talking about his criticism of postmodernism. Now, we're going to listen to just one of the interviews quickly here and hear what Chomsky has to say about postmodernism. Let's listen to this cut number one. I think the effect is pretty clear. Uh, it allows people to take a very radical stance, you know, more radical than thou, but to be completely dissociated from anything that's happening for many reasons. One reason is nobody can understand a word they're saying. <laughs> so they're already dissociated. It's kind of like a private lingo. And it's very, 
you know, there's a lot of uh, material reward that comes from it. Like if you're part of that system, you can run around the conferences and get big professorships and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of conventional material reward. So that's Noam Chomsky, the famous linguist uh, criticizing postmodernism. Now, postmodernism, how has it affected other aspects of society. Postmodernism has had a huge influence upon education. Now, we could do further episodes of Narrative Wars and talk about all the different areas where postmodernism has affected society. We could talk about how postmodernism has affected political science. We could talk about how postmodernism has affected history, the teaching of history, we could, or the not teaching of history, we could talk about how postmodernism has affected gender studies. We could talk about how postmodernism has affected uh, television, the media, the arts. It's affected all of these areas. We don't have time to talk about all of those things in this episode. So this might be part one of postmodernism. So we're going to focus on just one area here of what postmodernism has done to affect our society, and we're going to talk about education. So let's talk about how postmodernism has influenced education. We mentioned post-structuralism. We mentioned the rejection of past meta-narratives, the rejection of past grand narratives, making sense out of multiple stories. We mentioned that. The assault upon history, the assault upon understanding topics of history, such as the Industrial Revolution. Can't talk about that. We talked about the study of power relationships, the relationship between words and the creation of power, all of this has filtered into education. Romer, in an article titled Postmodern Education and the Concept of Power, this is an article written in 2011. I'll put the citation in the show notes. Romer writes, the overall aim of this article is to rescue this relationship between postmodernity and education and power so that it again becomes possible in the same utterance to speak of power, autonomy, education, and postmodernity. So this whole concept of power, and power is not distributed equitably, and we need to allow marginalized groups to have power. Uh, it sort of became evident to me that something was odd and percolating out there in education. I was teaching a graduate school course and it became very clear that the students in my class had a postmodern view of education and how it was supposed to work. And I wasn't with the program. I learned about something called student-centered education, which can be tied directly to postmodernism. Uh, student-centered education. This is citing from an article that was written in September 20th, 2023. The New Times, positive impacts 
of postmodernism on education. Some of the tenets of postmodernism have resulted in a paradigm shift. In other words, a completely new way of thinking about education and educational methodology, methods, how we teach education, what we do in the classroom. There's a general shift from a teacher-centered classroom to a student-centered classroom. And again, this is talking about power. And that is one of the ideas that Michel Foucault brought forward. Quote, a student-centered classroom involves opportunities for social interaction, independent investigation, study and expression of creativity, as well as provision for different learning styles. These are students who create knowledge and are no longer forced to bow to the subjugation of the traditional objective knowledge. Of course, postmodernism is a rejective, uh, a rejection of objective knowledge. Well, here's the criticism. The push for student-centered education seeks to position students as equals in the classroom, such that their individual desires should be given equal weight with the experience and the expertise of the educator in determining what occurs in their courses. Basically, you've got anarchy in the classroom, and it's encouraged. While designed to promote inclusivity, and that, again, is another big buzzword out there. Remember, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, inclusivity. All of this, this is postmodernism filtering down into society. While designed to promote inclusivity through removing all presence of a privileged voice, so <laughs> it's not even called a teacher anymore. It's a privileged voice. Such misguided democratization once again harms students. Students need an appreciation and respect for accumulated knowledge and instilling it does not entail a misuse of power in the classroom. Yes, look, I acknowledge there have been teachers in the past who have overstepped their bounds, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about delivering the material, having conversations in the classroom. And we're talking about, for example, let's say you want to become a civil engineer. You're going to have to be very good at mathematics. You're going to have to learn certain things. Engineering students need to know calculus. Calculus was something that was invented by Isaac Newton centuries ago. You're going to have to study that. So let's say you come to class and, yeah, I want to be a civil engineer. You're not even accepted into engineering school. You're in the high school level and you're talking to your teachers. And they say, oh, you tell your teachers in high school, I want to be an engineer. Well, the teacher says, you're going to have to study calculus. Well, I don't want to study calculus, but I want to be an engineer. It doesn't work that way. This isn't a power struggle. This is, you need these basic tools. Give you another example. Let's say someone wants to be a mechanic. Someone wants to work on cars, make a living, repairing vehicles, an honorable living. Nothing wrong with that. Well, these are the tools. You have to learn how to use a socket wrench. You have to use a screwdriver. You have to use certain pneumatic tools. 
air-driven tools. Well, I don't want to learn about a socket wrench or a screwdriver or pneumatic tools, but I want to learn how to repair cars. It doesn't work that way. So there are certain things you need to learn in order to become proficient in the trades and in other areas, other disciplines. There will always be situations in life where power is shared unequally. But that doesn't necessarily mean that something unjust is taking place. Many educators now encounter students who feel insulted, offended, or threatened when their ideas are disputed or their essays corrected. Well, I experienced this. I'll give you a couple of examples. I had a student once that, uh, and this was on the undergraduate level, they didn't like the way I marked their paper. They said, oh, there's red ink all over the paper. It looks like blood. You know, I'm offended. I, I said, no problem. I can take care of that. I marked their next paper with green ink. That criticism went away and the student didn't push back anymore. Had another situation of a graduate student that came to class. This was a doctoral level class. Student took one class and then complained to the dean and I can't take any more classes from Dr. Lyons. Uh, that, Dr. Lyons doesn't affirm me. Dr. Lyons doesn't let me talk about my ideas. Dr. Lyons uh, is uh, controlling all the power. I don't have power in the classroom. Well, I let the student talk quite a bit but I wanted to let other students talk also. I also had to cover the material, what we were reading, and make sure that students had a grasp of it and let the students talk to each other about the material. But this student wanted to take over the, the entire discussion, talk about themselves, talk about conversations with this person and that person and their travels outside of the country. And I tried to steer the conversation back to the topics that were in the syllabus. Look, when they paid for the course, the syllabus described what they were going to cover in the course. Well, the student was offended. The teacher had too much power. The student was marginalized. So that student quit the course. But I didn't understand what was going on. Student-centered education, postmodernism. On another occasion, I had a student just stand up. This was an undergraduate student. student just stood up in the middle of class and said, Bill Clinton is the greatest president ever. And we were having a conversation about something. This was a class on mass media. And I responded with one word, okay. And the student was still standing up. And then we had a brief staring contest. And the student sat down. And we continued with the class. Well, that student was marginalized. I wasn't talking about Bill Clinton. That student needed to share their ideas and their thoughts, even though their ideas and thoughts didn't have anything germane, anything to do with the topic of what we were discussing that day. It's all in the syllabus, what we're going to discuss each day. So the students stood up. I don't know why... The student wanted to talk about Bill Clinton that day. The student shared, Clinton is the greatest president ever. I said, okay. And that was it. So, student-centered education. Let me just wrap up today's program here. These are three different college students. 
three different classes, spanning from the undergraduate to the doctoral level. I'd never heard of student center education, but now I do suspect that these students had been in educational environments prior to coming into my classroom, and they had embraced that concept, which came straight from postmodernism. Until next time for Narrative Wars, I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons. We the people are sick and tired. So tired.